I thought I looked fucking amazing. Like I would, I couldn't believe it. We went to the patio cafe in the Castro for brunch before we went to cheer for the game. And all through brunch, I was just sitting there and I kept picking up the knife and like looking at myself <laughs> in the knife. I just was, I was like, this is it. That was Sister Roma of the San Francisco Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, you'll hear from artists, poets, drag queens, and other San Franciscans telling stories and responding to the question, what is it about this place? Welcome to Season 2, Episode 16, Part 2. In Part 1, Roma described growing up All-American in the Midwest and his first visit to San Francisco as a young man. In this podcast, she goes on to tell the story of becoming a nun in the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, who are celebrating their 40th anniversary this year. Here's Sister Roma. And then I met the sisters two years later in 1987. Let's hear about that. Had you seen them or did you know about them before you actually started meeting them? Not a clue. So what, uh, do you remember the exact story? Oh, absolutely. Let's hear it. Are you kidding? So I wasn't really, I had seen one drag queen in Grand Rapids, Michigan named Odessa Brown. And she, she, she did a rendition of, um, and I'm telling you, I'm not going from dream girls in our little gay bar called the carousel. And she, I mean, she tore the house down. Everybody was, including me, were just like losing our gay minds, screaming, throwing money. (laughs) Like it was everything in the world. But that was really my only experience with drag queens. And when I moved to San Francisco, I was all about the dick and the boys. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really get involved with any sort of um interesting people (laughs) (laughs) really were you hanging out on polks i was in the castro Castro, predominantly but there was also gay bars at the time on fillmore and here in the polk so i would go to all where all the boys were all the boy bars so i was after work one day i worked downtown in the financial district and a bunch of my friends and i were at the midnight sun which is a video bar two giant video screens that the front and the back of the bar and everybody we were in our power ties drinking our two-for-one cocktails <laughs> and um designing women or something was like on the screens and we were all enthralled with it and all of a sudden the front door blew open and this creature just breezed in and she looked like this showgirl clown nun and literally for the first time that entire day like the whole time we were there everyone's attention left the video screens and their cocktails and was focused on this one person including me i was like what who what's happening and she walked in and she was laughing and gregarious and just beautiful to me and she seemed to know everybody by name she greeted the bartender they gave her a big hug they gave her a cocktail and my friends and I were just like, what? Who's that? What's, what is this? And she walked right up to me and she said, hi, Michael. And I was like, do I know you? And she said, it's me, Norman. Now, Norman was my, one of my partners in crimes. He was a bartender on Fillmore Street. And um, we used to carouse around together, carry on, drink, and have so much fun. And he came up to me and, and I was like, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm Sister Luscious Lashes. I'm one of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. So that's how I met the sisters. Wow. He sort of came out to me, like, after I'd known him even though for almost yeah. a year. Yeah. You had no idea. Not a clue. He never mentioned the sisters to me at all. 
So then... So were you like question one, question two, question oh, yeah. five, What's this all about? Yeah. So he introduced me to the other sisters. And in San Francisco in like 1987, the group had gotten down to about really five or six active members. Now in the heyday, when the sisters started in 79, they grew to probably 40 members. And then... Um, there was a split in the order, and then HIV and AIDS. Sisters started to die. Sisters left the order, and there was Sister Vicious Power Hungry Bitch, <laughs> who is one of the founders. Sister Blanche DeRoot, who was a biological woman and a hairdresser in in the Fillmore. Uh, sister Dana Vaniquity, who is still a sister today, who lives in the Castro, who's a writer. Um, Sister Marquesa de Sade, who's no longer with us, who was sort of the South of Market queen, and Sister Luscious Lashes, Norman, my friend. So I met the group, and then I met a f- few more people in that community, and I started to volunteer with them just as a boy, which is how it all begins. If a sister asks you, well, why don't you come to one of our meetings, or would you like to sell raffle tickets or anything, <laughs> watch out. Because <laughs> <laughs> the trap is being laid. But um, I worked for a, about six months with the group just as a boy, and I was having so much fun with them. And I was starting to learn more about my community and about this work that the sisters had done. And the more I talked to the sisters, the more I was like, oh, my God. It was like literally a light bulb just exploded over my head, and I was like, I fucking care. Like, I care about <laughs> my community and the the people that I see around me who are sick and dying. Like I have to do something. I have to help them. I just, it was the most amazing thing that that ever happened to me in my four years in Catholic college. And it never inspired me that way. Mm -hmm. And that's partially my fault. I mean, I suppose if I looked for it there, I could have gotten that, but the sisters hit me like over the head and it changed my life. It was like a natural fit just waiting to happen that yeah. you didn't know about. And I had never done drag in my life. I never thought about it. Um, I never thought about activism. I never thought about raising a picket sign. I never thought about doing any of the things that the sisters do. I was going to ask, so you, you said volunteer. What what kinds of uh, just what kinds of all, all the activities that you were doing? Well, the thing that sticks the out the most in my mind is the sisters did a charity basketball game, donkey basketball game. And it was the sisters versus, I want to say it was the San Francisco Police Department, maybe. And it was, I, hope Kiz- so. I think it <laughs> was, yeah, it was Kazara Stadium. Yeah. And um, I was selling pom-poms in the stands for the sisters, black and white nice. pom-poms. And I just remember thinking, this is the coolest group and the coolest community and just... I, I, I don't want it to end. Yeah. So um, one day, Norman and I were on our way to go cheer for the Eagle softball team, which we called ourselves the cheerleaders from hell. And he decided to get dressed in his, in his nun drag. And he said to me, why don't you just try the makeup? And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do. So he showed me how to apply the white face. And he put me in front of the mirror with some paints. And he said, just paint whatever comes natural. And I'm a graphic artist and a designer, so I painted this really bold, sharp edge, sort of like intense war paint, triangles in bright colors, and put a gob of glitter on and painted my lips and the giant eyelashes, which are the trademark of the sisters, of course, the white face and the big eyelashes. And um, I thought I looked fucking amazing. Like, I, w- I 
couldn't believe it. We went to the patio cafe in the Castro for brunch before we went to cheer for the game. And all through brunch, I was just sitting there and I kept picking up the knife and like looking at myself <laughs> in the knife. I just was, I was like, this is it. I am the one. I've, I'm home. This is, this is me. This is who I am. It just felt so right and so good. And then the way that you can interact with people, I learned right away that being a sister enables you to put all sorts of inhibitions and things aside and people feel some people feel more inclined to open up and play with you as well because they're like oh there's a fun person and you can you can embrace people and you can interact and do things that you normally couldn't do if you weren't in drag jumping ahead just a little bit so i moved here in 2000 and i have to say i you know i don't maybe remember every single instance of when i've been somewhere and seen sisters but when i do i'm like this wherever i am whatever i'm doing it's special like, I get that sense that if you guys are there, it's special. That's awesome. Yeah. That makes me feel really good to hear yeah. that. Because it was difficult at first. You know, when sure. I joined, as I said, there was just five of us, and we had a long road ahead of us to get to where we are today. Uh, there was still a lot of people in the community who thought that the sisters were freaks and were weird, or we were making fun of nuns, we were against religion, we were all sorts of things. It took a long time for people to learn to get past what they saw and listen to what we were saying. Mm -hmm. And we've worked very hard and been very transparent about our fundraising efforts and the way that the millions of dollars that we've raised over the years, our records are public. We're strictly 100% volunteer and very careful to make sure people know that when they drop a dollar in our bucket, like 90 cents of it is going back to the community. So I'm very proud of the sisters who came before me and the work that we've all done and my sisters today. And it's that um, pride or my, that admiration and respect for the sisters before me that made me always strive to be the best sister that I could be. Well, the sisters started just basically as guerrilla theater. These guys from Iowa had these nuns' habits, and they went out on Easter Sunday to fuck with people because they were tired. Like in the, at the time in 1979, all gay men were wearing flannel shirts, had mustaches, tight jeans, leather coats. They were a clone, a Castro clone. They looked like the Marlboro Man, you know, or the guy off a brownie, a brownie paper towel roll. Like so, they were just so fed up. They were like, "Let's go fuck with people." So they put on these nuns' habits, and they went to the Castro, and they went out to the gay beach and everywhere they went people were just like wrecked like people were what is happening these men in these nuns habits so they realized they were onto something but it wasn't right away and that they discovered that they had a real purpose and that's was the HIV and AIDS so the sisters were the first group ever to hold a fundraiser for people who were sick and dying from HIV and AIDS and the first group ever to produce a safer sex pamphlet called Playfair Yes, one of the sisters was a nurse, a registered nurse. Ah. And so they put this book together about ways to avoid spreading sexually transmitted diseases, which is exactly as we know today, still the best way to avoid HIV and AIDS. Right. So we have actually modified that book, and now it includes things like PrEP, and, and we still publish it today. Awesome. What makes one an official sister? How, how, what is that process? Well, it's a calling. It really is. Yeah. I, I've seen a lot of people approach the group and try, and it's quite often they don't make it all the mm. way. And I think the way that I fell, found them and felt so comfortable immediately and just sort of took off running with it that I answered a calling that I had that I didn't even know I had. And um, 
I, yeah, I, I felt so comfortable and started to become very active right away. It was just two years after I joined the order. It was the 10th anniversary of the sisters. Mm-hmm. And um, there had been an increase in hate crimes in Dolores Park in the Castro. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked and I was concerned for my community. But beyond all that, I was fucking pissed. Mm-hmm. So I remembered that when I was growing up in Michigan, we had this thing called the Black Mother Program. Where as a kid, if you were walking home from school and you were needed help, if you saw a stranger danger situation or whatever, and you looked around at the houses in the neighborhood and you saw a window sign, it had, was a hand and it said Black Mother. And that was the place that you knew as a child that you could go for help. So I thought, we need something like that in our community for us to recognize places where we can get help if we need it. So I sat down at my computer and I designed this window placard with a pink triangle in it and it says, Stop the Violence safe place underneath it and my idea was that we would hand these out to people in the communities and they would display them and then people would know oh here's a place to go plus it would raise awareness to the situation the violence that was happening to our community Mm -hmm. so i started that in 89 and soon discovered that unlike the residential neighborhood where i grew up most of the people in San Francisco's windows are six stories high and they live behind a gate. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't necessarily going to be that practical, but it still raised a lot of awareness. And there was a, a, about a year later, there was a rape on campus at San Francisco State that they were trying to squash. And so the sisters and I went to the campus with our Stop the Violence posters and we added whistles. Because whistles are very effective ways to call attention to yourself if you need help, to alert to, to people, and to scare off a p- potential attacker and, and get help from other people. It just was a rape whistle, basically. So we added whistles to the Stop the Violence campaign, and I think that's what's kept it going all of these years. That program's still going. It is. Yes, absolutely. In fact, just last weekend, I partnered with Onyx, the, the Men of Color Leather Group, and they're doing their own version of Stop the Violence to reach out to their community because, as we know, hate crimes against people of color, especially trans people of color, are like through the roof. It's mm-hmm. so unacceptable. And like me, they're concerned and they're pissed. So they want to do something for their community. So we, we're partnering together on this new collaboration. I'm so excited about That's it. That's great. It's so... Um, amazing to be sitting here now 32 years later and we're on their 40th anniversary of the sisters and of course because Easter Sunday is when we were founded that is our anniversary so every year for probably like the last 25 30 years the sisters have thrown a free party for the community and it's returning to Dolores Park this year okay we started in uh, the little park in, in the Castro mm-hmm. at the school there, mm-hmm. and we outgrew that, so we moved to Dolores Park. And then Dolores Park was closed for renovations, so we moved to Golden Gate Park, mm-hmm. and we managed to fill Golden Gate Park a couple years, as long as it's not raining. And um, now the park is ready to welcome us back, and the community is so excited to see us. And we'll have, our, of course, our Foxy Mary contest, our Easter bonnet contest, and the legendary, infamous Hunky Jesus, Jesus contest. Yes. That's on Easter Sunday. It's on Easter Sunday in Dolores Park. And I, I've hosted the, emceed the Hunky Jesus contest since it started probably 20 years ago. And it is one of the most iconic San Francisco experiences. And I am never, ever ceased to be blown away by the concepts that this, the people in this city come up with. And I have to say, we have the best audience in San Francisco because they really respond to something very clever and well thought out. Like you can't just be a hunky Jesus and get up there and look like a Chip and Dale's dancer and expect to win. You have to come up with something like, um, 
Refugees. Refugees. Yeah, he came out like and he started throwing people towels from Puerto Rico. And we've we've had Viva Las Jesus who looked like an Elvis impersonator Jesus who came out when he opened his hands, red glitter fell out like a stigmata. We had Jesus fucking Christ. This guy who was dressed like Jesus had another guy, another guy, a dummy dressed like Jesus in front of him that he bent over. <laughs> yeah, that was... We've had a lot of really, really clever... Baby Jesus was a very popular one. It's just... it's. I can't wait to see what this year brings. It's going to be bigger and better than ever. I think that, in general, like, that speaks to a creative spirit in San Francisco. We're always kind of pushing each other to do something new and something fresh and new oh. spins on new takes on old ideas right well you hear a lot of people lament san francisco like oh, it's it's changed so much it's techie it's expensive it's grown it's not the same where are all the freaks where are the artistic people well, you know what we're right here we're right <laughs> we're right here you, you really don't have to look hard to find the things that you love the most about san francisco i've lived here for 35 years now and i still love it as much as i did the day i stepped foot here at the gay pride parade unknowing what was happening and did you know that in 2012 i ended up being grand marshal of that parade i didn't know that and yes, i do honey. now congratulations yes. that's amazing so i I should be the poster child, and I have been the poster child for San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) That was Sister Roma. Join us next week when we'll hear from another sister of perpetual indulgence, Sister Mary Meaty. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram if you want to stay up to date on everything we do. All past episodes are up on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If that's Apple Podcasts and you have a couple minutes, please rate and review the show for us. Send comments or suggestions to storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>